I do think there are a lot of guys, conservative Christians, that have just gone over the top. And, you know, God and country worship services like they do at First Baptist Dallas and other places. I just can't tolerate that. I think that is really bad news. I think it is a compromise on the mission of the church, and the gospel gets wrapped in a flag. And when that happens, the gospel is always the one that disappears. And so, yeah, we need to abominate that. We need to reject that. But in rejecting that in the name of the separation church and state, we, we must never cave in and think, okay, that means that there's a separation of Christ in the state. Because they're not. It's Christ's state. Everything belongs to Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't be ashamed to say what Christ says about anything. Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord and everything else under his feet. My name is David Schrock, and today we are taking another step in our investigation of Christian nationalism. All month long, we are invoking the unassuming style of Peter Falk's Columbo to ask just one more thing about Christian nationalism. We are sitting down with the key voices for and against Christian nationalism, and we're seeking to hear what they have to say about the subject what Christian nationalism is, what it is not, why it is good, or why it is not. And over the course of these dozen or so interviews, our prayer is that God would give more light than heat to this important subject. Next month, we will begin sorting out some of these claims. But today, we're sitting down with pastor and president of Founders Ministries, Tom Askell, to discuss the subject of Christian nationalism. So Tom, welcome to Christ Overall. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's been a joy to be on your podcast a couple of times, and so it's a joy for us to welcome you to, to ours, and I look forward to talking about some important things today with uh, the subject of Christian nationalism. And joining us for that conversation is Steve Wellham from Southern Seminary. Steve, good to talk to you today, brother. Great to be back again and uh, to talk with Tom on these important matters. Good to see you, Steve. Absolutely. Well, Tom, I think this is number five of the interviews that we have had over the month as we are preparing for the month of October. So this will release then. Uh, We've talked to guys like Mark David Hall and Kevin DeYoung, Doug Wilson, Andrew Walker, and there'll be some others as well. And so we're just excited to just think through some of these important things uh, related to Christian nationalism. And probably the place to begin is just to go back to the beginning of this year. You had a a national conference there with founders there in January, and you had a pre-conference related to Christian nationalism. And I'd love to just ask, why did you do that? What led you guys to think this is something that we need to talk about? And maybe just how has that impacted or how some of the fruit that has come from that pre-conference? Yeah, well, in thinking through what we wanted to do with that opportunity, I guess it was last year, probably last spring, uh, making these plans and uh, talking back and forth with Vody Balkum and just conversations he and I have been in with other people. Uh, this issue kept kind of uh, nibbling around the edges, and it just seemed like something that was going to be uh, a topic that wasn't going to be ignored. You couldn't ignore it. And so we thought, well, why not hit it straight up and just address the issues? We didn't advertise it for anything other than Christian nationalism. We didn't say pro. We didn't say con. And it was hilarious before the conference ever took place. You know, I had people writing me, calling me, couldn't believe that I'd sold out to Christian nationalism. And then people calling me, writing me, couldn't believe that I would attack Christian nationalism. And we hadn't said a word. We just announced we were going to have a conference on Christian nationalism. So that's uh, that's been pretty much uh, indicative of how this debate has gone so often, at least in the social media arenas. Yeah, I mean, that just reveals how much of a lightning rod it is, and it continues to be that way. It seems like it's even picked up steam in 2023. Conversations going on social media, there seems at times there's more heat than light. Um, Thinking about that, Steve, as you would kind of think about this, maybe just on a scale of 1 to 10, where do you place this? How how important is this, this discussion? Well, I mean, you have to rank in terms of importance, in terms of eternal matters, gospel matters, and so on. I mean, obviously, the preaching of the gospel, calling people to faith and repentance, seeing them grow in Christ, I mean, is of primary importance. Yet, we uh, we live as Christians in the world, and we live in per- this particular context 
as we see uh, a nation imploding around us. We see uh, much of our roots and so on being washed away. And uh, Christians obviously are wanting to speak into that situation. So it's important in that regard in terms of our Christian witness, how we live in the world, uh, being salt and light. But uh, we don't want to make sure that we uh, place this and make it equal with the very preaching of the gospel, right? It's, a, it's an outworking of Christians living in society and seeking to bear witness to Christ. Yeah. And Tom, that's certainly something I think I really appreciate. I went back this week and listened to your promises and perils of Christian nationalism, the message that you gave at that pre-conference, and I thought it was a very charitable, balanced, helpful approach to that. And so moving to just defining Christian nationalism, you provide a number of different definitions in that message. And I'm wondering if you just walk us through a little bit of what some of those definitions are that are out there and the definition that you came to as you looked at both some of the promises and the perils with respect to Christian nationalism. Yeah, well, that's part of the difficulty in this debate is there are so many definitions. And, you know, when a person will attack it and get some pushback, they'll say, well, that's not what I meant. And when someone advocates it and gets pushed back, they'll say, oh, well, that's not what I meant. And I found uh, definitions, in fact, I think I gave them in that talk, you know, almost from A to Z on uh, what is meant by this. Kristen Dumay says that it's belief that America is God's chosen nation and must be defended as such. Well, okay, if that's it, then I'm not that. You know, I'm, uh, America's not God's chosen nation. Uh, there's a United Methodist Church uh, historical researcher by the name of David Scott. And he says this is what it is. Uh, American Christian nationalism tries to define the United States as a native white Protestant nation and exclude all others, Catholics, African-Americans, indigenous peoples, immigrants, Jews, Muslims, etc. I said, I'm not that, you know, I, I mean, there may be people like that. I don't know them. They're not in my circles, certainly. Uh, and Michael Horton, you know, Mike, Michael Horton says Christian nationalism is a threat to Christianity. And I've got a great deal of respect uh, for Michael Horton. But he goes on to say patriotism is saying that America or whatever your country is special to you. I think nationalism is saying America is special to God. It's part of his plan, not just his providence, but part of the outworking of almost a redemptive history. America's a redeemer nation. Well, again, yeah, that's I'm against that. We do have some politicians saying some stupid things like that. And so, you know, we ought to grant it, but they're not our theologians, and I'm not going to get my theology from a politician. One of the things that I kind of settled on, I mean, Stephen Wolf has his own definition, and his book has been kind of the the big player right now because um, it's been out there for a little over a year, I guess, now. And it's a, I don't know if you guys have read it, it's a dense book, heavy sledding. I appreciate the book because he has done so much good work in retrieving uh, Protestant political thought things I'd never seen before, did not know existed. So I benefited just from the research of the book. I appreciate that. Uh, but he, he puts it like this, that Christian nationalism is a totality of a na- national action consisting of civil laws, social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. Well, again, while I appreciate some of what he's done in his book, I don't appreciate the definition so much because he assumes things that he's trying to define. You know, it's a Christian nation that. Uh, well, what do we? What makes a nation a Christian nation? That's the big debate. So, what I finally settled on was uh, a definition used by a critic, one of the most outspoken critics of Christian nationalism. This is Paul Miller's definition. He's a professor of practice of international affairs at Georgetown and um, has been involved in uh, foreign service and such uh, on the national scene. But he defines it this way. Christian nationalism asserts that there is something identifiable as an American nation, distinct from other nations, that American nationhood is and should remain defined by Christianity or Christian cultural norms, and that the American people and their government should actively work to defend, sustain, and cultivate America's Christian culture, heritage, and values. So that's his criticism. And I say, okay, I'll take that definition and run with it, and I affirm the things that he's concerned about in that definition. America's a distinct Christian nation? Yes, 
yeah, uh, we got a political system right now that seems like they want to erase that by destroying our borders. But uh, yeah, I think definitely I would say that. The, a second part of his definition is that America is a nation that's defined by Christian cultural norms and should remain that way. Again, I say amen. Uh, I mean, you guys have talked to David Hall. His book that he wrote, you know, Did America Have a Christian Founding? It's, it is a uh, powerful book just in terms of the research and the argumentation based upon the documents. <laughs> I learned in that book that uh, Thomas Jefferson you know, wanted uh, the national seal to be a picture of Pharaoh and the chariot in the middle of the Red Sea as the water's coming over destroying him. That's remarkable. That, that's a deist, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, we need more deists like that. Give me deists like that today. <laughs> I would take them over a lot of people who call themselves Christians. So, yeah, I would say amen. Uh, we definitely are a nation that's been defined by Christian cultural norms and that we should remain, or I would love to see us return that way. And there's all kind of indications uh, through our history. I mean, it's just in the record. It's in the legal record of documents like Supreme Court Justice David Brewer said in 1892 in a case uh, the Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States. This is the Supreme Court Justice said the chief justice he said i think he's the chief justice maybe he's not but anyway supreme court justice christianity general christianity is and always has been a part of the common law not christianity with an established church but christianity with liberty of conscience to all men well again that's i'd say amen to that the third part of miller's definition is that individual americans in the united states government should work to defend and promote quote, American Christian culture, heritage, and values. And again, I would say amen. Uh, that doesn't, doesn't necessitate the government taking over the church or dictating to the church. It's recognizing that there is such a thing as values, culture, and heritage that extends from Christianity and that a nation that was founded on that uh, should appreciate that and protect that. And I would say amen. So I take his definition as a critic and say, uh, yeah, this is a debate worth having. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's helpful. And it's, I mean, it's helpful to think about that context of someone who is opposing that when he's mm-hmm. defining it in that way. Steve, you hear that definition. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's a very helpful uh, definition. Of course, it would still have to be fleshed out a bit. So what does it mean to to for for this nation to uphold the values, uh, tradition, culture? Of course, that would get into specifics. Would that mean the establishment of, you know, blasphemy laws or something like that. I mean, you'd have to spell that out in terms of what those values would be. I mean, usually we would tie that probably, we'll let Tom address this, but, you know, tied back to some kind of creation order and some kind of moral moral law, natural law kind of thing, uh, not an establishment of religion, but values could be expanded. So you'd have to flesh that out. But I mean, I think it's speaking of the the church's influence on the culture and that as as we've had in this nation, a majority of people who have wanted Christian values and Christian morality and Christian laws to be to be brought to bear on how the government runs and how our nation runs, we speak of that Christian influence. Um, always the hesitation is, is do you when you use the adjective Christian, you know, are you confusing it with the church? And of course, we don't want to do that. But the nation that is influenced by Christianity and embraces moral values and virtues that are Christian. I mean, what else would we want a nation to uh, uphold other than what is right and good according to God's standards? So I think that definition is helpful. And some of the other ones that Tom mentioned uh, are not helpful, right? Yeah. So we wouldn't embrace that. Yeah, I think we would fall in the same place where you just laid your cards on the table, Tom, to say that we would deny anything that would be identifying America as God's chosen people, certainly excluding, you know, Catholics or African Americans or anything like that. But to affirm the fact that there is something historically, historical record, legal record, all the rest, that there's something unique about America in the way that Christianity has influenced the culture that is there. So there has been a Christian culture that is there. So I'd be curious to know as a pastor and someone who has, you know, uh, had some interaction with Ron DeSantis there, even with the, or today we're recording one day before the hurricane came through last year. And I know there was some time that you spent with him as he came uh, to Cape Coral and Fort Myers there. What are some things that you have done as a pastor or what would you do to encourage pastors to, you know, uh, this idea of working to defend or to embrace a Christian culture? What have you done in your teaching? What have you done outside of the local church that you would recommend to others as well? 
Yeah, well, uh, I don't think you can be faithful to Christ in contemporary America without addressing some of the things that are uh, prominent, not only culturally, morally, but also politically, because there are so many uh, emphases coming from the political arena that are just grossly immoral and destructive to people. So uh, when you have a president who flies the LGBTQ flag on the White House and talks about how uh, these, these folks who have identified themselves with this ideology are to be uh, promoted and uh, to be welcomed and that this is a right and good thing. I don't think you can stay silent about that. So what do we do uh, practically? Well, I, I do what I've been doing through, I forget how many administrations it is now. <laughs> we pray regularly, almost every week for President Biden, or the President of the United States, and for our governor. Pray for our mayor locally. Then we'll pray for other political leaders around the world. We prayed for Putin, Zelensky, and the different nations. Uh, we have probably, I don't know, 15, 20 different nationalities represented in our church. And so we'll pray for those who are in authority politically. Uh, I write letters. Uh, we've had people that have um, been involved in local school boards and um, different types of uh, opportunities and settings where they can go and speak. I've done that publicly. I've been at abortion clinics and preached and have been to uh, city council meetings and things like that. Not you know, going there to, to make a scene, but going there to make a statement and being unapologetic about the statement and just reminding folks that there's a God in heaven and that one day they're going to give an account to him because he's the one who appointed them to their jobs. And as well, I'm not a Christian. Oh, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian. I'm just talking to you about reality. And uh, you may not agree with that or see it, but I'm just trying to help you know that this is really true. Beyond that, you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a, a social media activist at all, but I, I do use Twitter. I don't basically do anything else and try to use it as a one-way communication tool, but you know, I, I follow uh, different politicians and I appreciate. One of them is Ted Cruz, senator from Texas, my home state. And I don't remember now when it was. It was a few weeks ago or something, but I, it just came across my screen. I wasn't looking for it when Uganda passed their law about uh, criminalizing aggressive homosexuality, as they said it. You know, he, he could just blew a gasket. This is atrocious. This is a, a horrific law. There's nothing right or just about anything that would punish homosexuality. And so I responded to him kind of off the cuff. I just cited a law from Leviticus. I said, you know, you take it up with God. God had a nation one time and he told them to punish those who practice homosexuality. So it can, you can't make that categorical universal statement. You just can't do it. And so he and I had a little back and forth, and I reached out to him privately, wasn't able to get any kind of response, but I don't mind doing it. I did the same thing with President Trump, commended him when he was president, and uh, he came out right toward the end of his administration against CRT. I appreciated that about him. Uh, he actually retweeted me one time. That was an interesting <laughs> few days uh, when that happened. But then later, after that, he came out and said, you know, I'm the most pro-LGBTQ president in the history of this nation. And I publicly said, you know, with all due respect, Mr. President, this is vile. <laughs> this is wrong. You need to repent. So, I mean, that's not a big deal in, you know, social media. I don't even know if it's real all the time. But where we have opportunity to speak, we ought to be willing to speak. I think about John the Baptist, who said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. What's he doing? He's just telling him the truth. He's not picking a fight. He's just saying that you, you're flaunting something that is contrary to the very law of the God before whom you will stand to give an account one day. And uh, I see that as a matter of love and stewardship to to do that and not to say that, oh, well, that's a political issue that's off limits. There's nothing off limits for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we his people need to be prepared to acknowledge that and speak when given the opportunity. Yeah, we would certainly agree with that, as certainly even Christ overall exists to be able to proclaim the Christ as Lord overall. All things are under his feet, including everything that you just included there. 
Tom, I'm curious, you had mentioned, I can't remember if it was a podcast later on, uh, something that came across, I think, all of our you know, Twitter feeds a couple months back from Adrian Rogers. Uh, Adrian Rogers was preaching and just talking about the, uh, the responsibility of a, of a Christian citizen. And I'm just curious, how did we get to a place where you have that message today where he would be kind of you know, lauded or you know, decried as this great Christian nationalist? How do we get that from a preacher who is doing that? And even I think some of the things that you have done, I've done some of those similar things as well along the way. Way, but how do we get to, to that, to some pastors, some Christians who would say today, politics is off limits. We shouldn't be talking about it. What, what, what has happened? Boy, you know, that's a great question. And, and uh, I, don't, I don't have any definitive answer on that. But I do think that we have, as an evangelical community in America, we have been well discipled by the world, more so than we know. And uh, that, that has infiltrated areas of our thinking that um, 50 years ago wouldn't have been as problematic because there was more of the residue of a Christian understanding of reality. And uh, because we kind of were trained and our sensitivities, I think, were relaxed on um, just what the, the world system is, that it really, the world system really is an enemy and we can't uh, let our guard down that we did let our guard down and it didn't affect us directly as much as it does now. So uh, now we're in a day when you've got the political system and culture and entertainment that's just coming in like a tsunami and telling us that you must affirm whatever an individual claims his or her or zer or whatever the pronouns are identity and that you if you don't then you're literally killing them you're you're literally showing violence to them and i think that uh, some pastors just lost their voice because they never cultivated what it meant to critique the culture the way we should have been critiquing it all the way all, all the way through and I got to speak for myself, man, I'm playing catch up. You know, I, I feel so far behind on political theology and not thinking as carefully about these matters as we should. Uh, I'm a, a free church, free state. You know, that's what I learned. Uh, that's what I grew up with. It's what I was, had confirmed in all of my training for pastoral ministry. And I can still affirm that as an ideal, but we're so far away from that ideal that what we're seeing is is not a free state and there's no free state in sense of being neutral that neutrality is a myth and i think as long as there was some cultural christian vestiges that the idea that that represented neutrality uh, allowed us to just kind of operate without thinking too deeply and now that that switch has been flipped and we see, no, 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 this is really antagonistic. The, the memory, muscle memory of, but you don't, you don't engage in politics. You know, politics is, is a dirty business and that's not, has no place in the church. And you, you know, I think there's been an allergy to it. Now, now having said that, I do think there are a lot of guys, conservative Christians that have just gone over the top and, you know, God and country worship services like they do at First Baptist Dallas and other places. I just can't tolerate that. I think that is really bad news. I think it is a compromise on the mission of the church and the gospel gets wrapped in a flag. And when that happens, the gospel is always the one that disappears. And so, yeah, we need to abominate that. We need to reject that. But in rejecting that in the name of the separation church and state, we, we must never cave in and think, okay, that means that there's a separation of Christ in the state. Because they're not. It's Christ's state. Everything belongs to Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't be ashamed to say what Christ says about anything. Uh, you know, following up with that, Tom, in terms of, you know, we've lived off of a, a Christian a heritage, Christian, um, in some sense, borrowed capital, right? I mean, we've we've had so much of Christian morality, virtue, as that disappears. So, So what would you recommend people have to vote you know all government legislates morality so so what should we be encouraging christians to say this is what the government is responsible to uphold here is the moral values that we as christians would say if you're talking to the president uh, joe biden you have a meeting with him say 
President Biden, this is what you need to be upholding. You are under God. Your state is is not autonomous. Um, what kind of moral laws should they be enforcing? Others, you know, people get concerned with a Christian influence in Christian nation that we're enforcing uh, Christian standards that would eliminate, you know, other people from this country type of thing. So what advice are you giving to people to say, well, here's the law of God that the government must follow versus say what we have in our churches. And so we're distinguishing the role of the state from the role of the church. Yeah. Well, first of all, I tell our folks, and we started this earlier this year, we, we've got to pray. I mean, because the borrowed capital you referred to, I've used the analogy that we've had massive deposits put into the moral bank of America through revival. And by God's grace, I think that goes a long way to explain the difference between the French Revolution and the American Revolution. And we just have lived without revival now for a hundred plus years. I lived through the Jesus movement and I'll tip my hat to that, but it's not what we read about historically in some of the great moves of God. So we are taking every month, first Wednesday of the month, we pray and fast as a church for revival. And apart from that, you know, there, there's no hope for America. I mean, I, you know, God's got to rescue us. We're so far gone. God's got to do the work. So we know that. We don't want to forget that. But neither do we want to sit back and twiddle our thumbs and say, well, we'll just wait until next Wednesday and then we'll pray. You know, it's, it's, it's not that. We've got to do what we're supposed to do. And uh, I, I approach it from a couple of different angles, but, but maybe the most, the one that's resonated the most with people is if you think about how the Bible instructs us regarding how we are to conduct ourselves in the political arena, which it most certainly does. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, we, we have those verses trotted out to us in times when there's uh, uncertainty or the government's made some mandates. But when you think about the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, the instructions, the expectations that are given to kings, what are, what are kings' jobs? Well, the king's job is to punish what is evil and to reward what is good. Okay, well, who's the king in the United States? It's not President Biden. It's the citizens. We're citizen kings. And so we have an opportunity and a responsibility in this democratic republic or this constitutional republic to do what we can to thwart evil and promote good. And you know, we're limited, but all every citizen has the right to vote. Every citizen has the right to speak. Every citizen has the right within proper limitations of running for office and we ought to seize that so if, if i could get an audience with president biden i i would immediately say to him mr president uh you realize god has put you in this office and the bible teaches me that i'm to respect you i'm to honor you i'm to obey you as you use the authority he's given you to do what he's called you to do and i don't think you understand what he's called you to do because you're promoting evil and you're, you're actually spitting in the face of the one who put you in position and gave you the authority to carry out the job of punishing evil and rewarding good. And what you're doing is you're punishing good and you're rewarding evil. And before too long, you're going to stand before this God and you're going to be held accountable for what you've done in this Oval Office. And you need a Savior. And I want to tell you about the Savior because you need to be rescued from your sin and you need to get right with your God and then carry out your duties in the fear of God and recognize that he has prescribed to civil authorities the responsibility to promote good and to resist evil or to punish evil. He's given you a sword for that purpose. Now, when you get into which laws, I can more quickly, readily debate and, and argue for the second table laws or those that arise from natural law. And uh, I think that's a fruitful arena to have the debate in the first table of the law. My Baptist instincts get pretty nervous pretty quick about that. And uh, I don't think that is what God has called the civil magistrate to legislate or to monitor or to promote or, or to uh, put down. But most certainly we need to acknowledge that uh, there are elements that uh, go right to the first table that the civil authority should be responsible to guard and protect as we have seen in the history of this country with things like polygamy that was outlawed uh, with things like uh, blue laws. I, mean, I, I 
still can remember as a kid, there were places that did, everything was shut down on Sunday. Was that wrong? I don't think so, because even in the Constitution, I forget now exactly where it is, but there's a reference to the president has the duty to sign a bill, I think, or something in so many days, excluding Sunday. Oh, okay. Why is that in there? That's Christian influence. That's why that's in there. It's why it's not Saturday, Friday. So with that, uh, that's where the debate needs to be held. It needs to be held at a high level. Okay, how do we do that? You know, we're not, I'm not asking for a, a theocracy at all. Uh, I think that would be a disaster because we're just not capable of doing that, uh, carrying it out properly. But a, a, a government that is ruling in the fear of the Lord, give me that every day. Yeah, I think you said a couple of things there that are worth kind of drawing out. I think, one, just the debates that we're having today, it seems to be because there hasn't been great attention to some of these matters, either in seminary or just the focus of just what we need to be learning. You mentioned Stephen Wolf's book, and one of the things that he does is to go back to a, a Protestant tradition that helps us to think through some of these matters that maybe we've just taken for granted. Uh, certainly those who were at the founding of our, our country had been influenced by that way of thinking, put those things into what was in Instantiated in the Constitution and the rest, and we have been living off of borrowed capital. And so it seems as though there is a way in which these things are being brought back up. And and I wonder if there's just kind of, you know, we talk about cage stage Calvinism, but there's almost a kind of cage stage political theology because different people are working with different things within various traditions. And then because we haven't come to an agreed position, we haven't been thinking about it for you know a long period of time, that's where a lot of the heat is. It was interesting last week listening to James White. He spoke at the G3 conference. And he said that he wrote a support letter, so to speak, support letter is the wrong word, but advocating for some Navy SEALs who came to him who were looking for an exemption with the mandate of a vaccine. Uh, and he said that he began with the Lordship of Christ. And very candidly, he said, you know, 10 years ago, that's not where he would have begun. But because of where things have come today, putting that at the first foremost, thinking about the Lordship of Christ seems to be something that he has recovered. Tom, you mentioned just some of the things you've been growing in. I think the need for more political theology which is what the Institute of Public Theology is doing, it seems as though that's one of the reasons why this debate is so heated is because we haven't been well-schooled in this. I mean, certainly there are those who have thought about this. The theonomy tradition is an area that have thought about this. Francis Schaeffer has thought about these things and helped many. But there's been, it seems, some missing pieces along the way. So I bring all that together to ask this question, because I know you've mentioned just going back and reading some early Baptists. Mm-hmm. Who were some of the early Baptists that would help us to think about these things, and what did they say? Yeah, well, Andrew Fuller uh, is one. I've spent a little time studying him, and uh, he's got a couple of really good sermons that make people nervous today. We, <laughs> we've republished one of them on the Founders' website, and uh, he just argues, yeah, we, we've got to recognize that a love for our country it's consistent with a love for Christ, that these things are not antithetical. J.C. Ryle got this great quote that I've used a lot, that if uh, a man who's only uh, half awake or not paying attention to what's going on in the culture and his nation and doesn't care, well, he's a poor-style patriot and, and not a very good Christian, you know? <laughs> and I'm the okay, what's J.C. Ryle? Uh, so, yeah, John Gill. I mean, John Gill has in his uh, Body of Divinity statements that the magistrate is to not only enforce the second table of the law, but also the first table of the law. That's John Gill. Say what you wanted to about John Gill. You can't accuse him of not being a Baptist. You know, I mean, he was Mr. Baptist. And again, I read that. It makes me a little nervous, but I want to understand what he was saying. I want to understand why he said it and why he could say it without any fear that he was giving up those things that make us Baptists, the distinctives that I've come to know and love. And so I don't pretend that I've figured all that out, but it, it's worth listening to. It's worth uh, considering. Your comparison of cage stage Calvinism, I think, is exactly right. I've, I've thought about that a little bit, too. And I remember in some of those early days, you know, back in the 80s, when you could put all the Calvinists in the SBC in a phone booth, you know, and uh, whenever we would get out and talk about things and people would be angry and some of the acrimony back and forth. And I'm, you know, our side as well as the anti-Calvinist side, we're all guilty of it, but the arguments were based on ignorance. And I I see that a lot. I, I see some of the guys that are really advocating Christian nationalism, trying to, to stake out positions that I don't believe they've thought through the implications 
of all the positions you're trying to stake out. I think some of it, not all of it, and there's some really good thinkers, and I appreciate them, but but I think some of it's reactionary. They they see drag queen story hour, and so they're thinking, what's what's better than that? This is better than that. Boom, let's do that. And they're not thinking, okay, what are the what are the unintended consequences of that position? But then I have to confess, on the other side, I've seen it even worse. Where there's folks that are shooting at Christian nationalism, and I don't think they could tell you what it is if their life depended on it. You know, they've got a they've got one of these definitions that's been hurled around, but it's not what the folks they're shooting at actually mean and when they're advocating it using that language and so i've, I've told my wife and church uh more than once i said it, i read this stuff it's like i'm back in junior high school watching a food fight you know it's just so immature so unproductive and um, you'd love to get these guys in a room for about 15 minutes and just say look okay we're christian brothers here we're not going to act like this we're going to remember we have a savior and remember that uh, just because you have a strong opinion it doesn't give you a license not to be christian so let's talk now about substantive issues i've actually proposed that uh to a couple of guys but nothing's uh nothing's gotten off the ground yet but i would be i'd I'd applaud that if we could do it i wonder i mean tom i mean this could be a long discussion but You've suggested that the second table of the law is that which the government should be upholding, and then that would even be tied to issues of of natural law and so on. What about um, if we do then uh, practically think of that? So we uphold the sanctity of marriage, right? We uphold um, heterosexual marriage. We are against, uh, obviously, the command to commit adultery and so on. What about um, how we go about thinking of upholding that and also penalizing violation of that in terms of uh, laws, um, you know, penalties, that kind of thing. I mean, that's an issue that comes up in terms of appealing to Christian morality and values. Do we go to the Old Testament and draw the penalties of it? Do we not? Do we leave it to, up to the state? Uh, any any thoughts on that if we're going to be using the second table of the law? Yeah, well, and, uh, you know, there's a movement today, and they take the title of uh, in a way that I think is an oxymoron, but they do it anyway. They call themselves uh, general equity theonomists. And, uh, you know, back in my day, and <laughs> whenever I was just learning about theonomy in the 80s and trying to understand it, you could either believe in general equity of the Old Testament civil law, or you could be a theonomist. You know, you, those two things were like on the opposite side of the fence. And now you've got this general equity theonomist, and I'm looking at him and saying, pick one. You know, what are you, what are you talking about? So I'm a 1689 confession guy. And in the 1689 confession, it says that the civil laws of Israel are abrogated. They're not binding on us in the new covenant, to which I say, amen. But it adds, except to the extent to which the general equity thereof, you know, can be gleaned and appreciated. I forget the exact language. And so, yeah, there's real wisdom and we see righteousness embedded in some of the civil code given to Israel in the Old Testament. But if you just try to to lift whole cloth, the civil code, and implant it again on a contemporary nation or any other nation, it's going to be disastrous. And I think it's it's uh, superficial because in redemptive history, God had a role for Israel to play. And so all of the ways that the, the civil uh, arena was organized for Israel was in conjunction with its role in redemptive history as a covenant people of God. So that has to be factored in. When you factor that in, it immediately puts governors on some of this stuff about, you know, we're just going to take this law and put it over here. However, man, there's some really wonderful insights. I mean, the a parapet on the roof of your house. What is that? Well, I, I think that that is uh, an outworking of the righteousness in the Sixth Commandment, you know, that you, you don't murder. So somebody's on top of your house. In those days, it'd be easy to fall off. So you put a parapet around it. So does that mean we are requiring people to put fences on the roofs today? No, that would be foolish. But there's some real wisdom in putting a fence around a swimming pool. You know, we can learn from that and apply general equity that we see in that law. So the the penalties for those uh, violations, I think, again, that's debatable. I don't think we have to stone the adulterer or the homosexual. I'm not opposed to sodomy laws. Uh, we used to have them. I mean, they're on the books until just a few decades ago. And so we either need to be willing to say, those who are nervous 
be talking like this as Christians. We need to be willing to say, okay, that was unrighteous to have those laws on the books back then, or be open to the possibility that maybe it was right to do that and better than what we have today. It's not a question, as, as you said, Steve, of uh, whether or not we're going to have laws rooted in morality. All laws are rooted in morality. The question is which one, which morality, whose morality? The LGBTQ ideology? No, thank you. I'd much rather have our laws grounded in Christian morality, that which takes seriously the world that God has created, that Christ rules and reigns, and where he has told us not only what's right, but what's good, what's beautiful, what's best for us. So I I think those are debatable issues. what, What is the penalty for adultery? Well, I don't know, but I'm happy for there to be a penalty for adultery. I'm happy for those who have had adultery committed against them to see some protections from the law operate in their behalf. And uh, again, I, we're, we're a long way from it, but I wish we were having those debates today. Steve, would you add anything to that or say anything different than what Tom has said there? No, I mean, I think uh, Tom is right. I mean, we, we can't just go to... Uh, Israel's laws and just bring them over to the state. I mean, that would be a fundamental misunderstanding of Israel uh, under the covenant, what it, how it applies to them, what the state is today, and so on. I mean, I think a good place is the second table of the law. I mean, in terms of the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, private property, and so on. That's rooted in creation, isn't it? It's rooted in natural law. Thinking through the penalties would be uh, difficult. There would have we'd have to go to uh, the entirety of Scripture and look at what is 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 taught, and then actually see what uh, could be brought into a society, right, with heart change and and so on. But we do need to uphold what is right and good. You'd want to uphold all that is tied to marriage. I would even see putting into tax law type of thing, benefits to encourage people to have families and children and uh, helping people to have families to encourage that versus discouraging it. So even your tax laws reflect moral values and uh, what you think is important. And uh, that would be a great debate to have, wouldn't it? Uh, Instead of now what we're seeing with the whole dismantling of anything of uh, biblical morality. Yeah, I agree. And I, I want to just mention, now you guys probably know this, but Chuck Colson actually had tried with, through his prison fellowship to uh, see ways that we might reform our penal codes. I mean, if you look at our prison systems, uh, we have guys that are in prisons regularly preaching in our church, and I've gone in with them some. And I mean, it's tragic. It is tragic. If we could learn from Old Testament penal codes, we would have far fewer people incarcerated and we would have a greater emphasis on restitution, which would be so beneficial across the board. Colson, I mean, he actually experimented with it in some places in other countries, and I wish we had more who were willing to look into that. Yeah, you, you go back and, and look at C.S. Lewis's uh, article from years ago, The Humanitarian Theory of Punishment, where he was going against the new wave in terms of just rehabilitation, putting incarcerating people, uh, not actually having them do restitution, not treating them as image bearers who were responsible for their actions and needed to actually – the person that they had sinned against to actually repay them and, and bring restitution uh, instead of putting them in prison and so on, that would – bring a huge change to our society. And obviously, criminals that need to be in prison, would that's a different story. But uh, you would have a lot more wisdom there of following and treating people as responsible for their actions. Amen. So if this is the conversation that needs to be had, to be thinking through some of these particular applications of the law when we think about just how is it wisely uh, applied in these ways, not taking whole cloth, old covenant to, to application today, it seems like one of the things that's getting in the way of having that conversation is just this this term, Christian nationalism, right, or terms of, you know, different definitions that are there. For either one of you, how much agreement do we need to have on these things? Or is there a sense which the ideal might be to just even have a moratorium on trying to define are you for or against Christian nationalism and say we need to just go back to the scriptures to be able to think through this, learn from our traditions, right? Certainly we see things from Augustine to Aquinas to the Protestant Reformation to our Baptist heritage and to be learning from these things and taking less shots at one another, recognizing that none of us have our PhDs in these things, you know, there are some, but I mean, as a whole, we need to grow in that, that can be far more effective and helpful than just continuing to spit back and forth at each other. Any thoughts on that? 
Well, yeah, I, I would say amen to that. And uh, again, uh, one of the joys of my life in pastoring the folks here in Cape Coral, Florida, is that I'm able to have conversations with them who uh, are living out in the real world where they're being told they're going to have to go through diversity, equity, inclusiveness training, where they're being promised uh, C-suite jobs if they'll only identify themselves as bisexual, you know, just things like that. So they're, they're dealing with the downstream issues that really hit day to day. And that keeps me grounded some from just, you know, spitballing stuff back and forth because you got real people whose lives are on the line here. And I don't care about the term Christian nationalism. It doesn't matter to me one way or the other. The issues are vitally important and we need to be having debates about the issues, but I haven't seen many productive ones yet. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, that the term itself is throwing, uh, you know, people in all kinds of different directions. And I think what we need to see, right, is that we uh, we are the church. We need to be uh, having Christ as Lord of every area of our life. We need to be having a salt and light effect in our society. And then really, we really need some practicality to this, uh, as Tom is saying. I mean, people have jobs. So how do we help them in terms of influence their particular job? We have to get Christians to think about when they vote that to make sure they do vote and they actually vote with uh, Christian principles in mind instead of just voting you know, to a person who promises something uh, contrary to Christian morality and and so on, and actually get the church to unite. We, we agree on much more than I think we disagree. And uh, if we separate from one another, that's not going to help, right? We need to, as the church, think of how can we continue to influence the society. We're going to have to pray. We're going to have to see revival and ask God for that. We're going to have to see churches being strengthened and, and conversions taking place. I mean, there's no hope for this nation apart from that. And we have to realize that's our priority, yet we have to help people in our society uh, live as Christians, bring the gospel to bear in every area of their life and their work and their society and their voting. And uh, that is really what we need to be doing more than uh, probably separating from one another. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And just in this conversation here, recognizing that if we were to turn this conversation in a different direction and take it for another hour, we could talk about the similarities and differences. We're talking about this this month with progressive covenantalism and 1699 federalism, right? And we could probably find some disagreements on the tripartite division of the law and things like that. And yet, as I'm listening to both of you, I mean, there's a, an awareness of the recognition of the transference of how the Old Testament law is working with the covenant people of Israel, the differences that are applied today. And I think there would be a a lot of similarity, more similarity than difference on how that needs to be applied in the culture and in our country today. And that would be far more beneficial than just, you know, continue to draw up lines to say, because I define it this way, I'm going to be in this group over here as opposed to others. And that seems to be something that is necessary. Yeah, amen to that. Uh, <laughs> again, well, we're in a massive war. And what I've said to folks on both sides of this debate is we need every available gun and we need aimed in the right direction. And we have our differences about how to fire and what weapons to use maybe. But if God gets us through this one, we can have the debates about that afterwards. But let's fight together now. Let's stand together. We all believe the gospel. We all believe God's word. We all believe that what he says is right is right. What he says is wrong is wrong. Can we rally around those things that we actually do hold in common? and stand uh, as the gates are being overrun by uh, those that would uh, destroy everything good, right, and beautiful. Yeah, I think that's well said. And you know, just to kind of close our time here, Tom, you'd mentioned just the way that you pray in your local church and the need for us to pray and even that model of taking, you know, one Wednesday a month to fast and to pray. I think that's a good admonition and something that we should be doing because if the Lord is the one who seeded his truth into our country by means of the gospel, saving people, changing people, going out and then influencing all areas of life, it comes back from the Lord. I and mean, we talk talked to Doug Wilson the other day, one of the things that we could agree on is the fact that he mentioned that the way that change happens is not by just legislation first, but preaching the gospel, seeing people saved, going out into the world. And then those legislations, those different areas are going to be changed by people who have actually been changed by the gospel. So thinking about that, maybe Tom, I, I just ask, would you pray uh, as we close our time here? Yeah, absolutely. Our Father, we have talked about important things in this conversation, and we confess that some of those things... Um, 
we've not thought deeply about yet the way that we should. And we want to. We, we want to understand your word and see how your word speaks to us in what we're facing today. We thank you that we can have great confidence as we go to your word and as we try to think carefully, knowing that you do still speak and that your spirit illumines us and that he equips us and empowers us to discern the truth and to stand firm on it. We thank you that we have been taught by your word and spirit that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord, that he rules and reigns over all, and that you are working for eternally good purposes through what you have given to us in Christ. So we ask you to help us to steward well all that you've entrusted to us, the time in which we live, the place in which we live, the challenges and opportunities that go with that, so that we can represent Christ well. We want him to receive the glory that he is due, and we want to be faithful in commending him to this lost and dying world. So we're asking you to have mercy on us, O God. We're asking you for the sake of your own name, for the glory of your Son, to come and revive your work again among us. For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Tom, thank you for the time today and your reflections on this has been helpful. Well, man, I appreciate what you guys are doing. Look forward to seeing how all of that comes together. Amen, likewise, likewise. And Steve, thank you, brother. As always, it's good to talk with you, man. Great to be with you. Such important matters, and we'll continue to pray as Thomas prayed. Amen. And friends, thank you for listening today. All month long, we'll be offering interviews on the subject of Christian nationalism. These interviews include church historians, theologians, and pastors, all of whom are listed on our website. Our aim this month is to provide definitions and clarifications from all those who are pushing for and pushing against Christian nationalism. Next month, we'll begin analyzing some of these arguments and offering many articles and essays outlining a constructive vision of church and state. Until then, enjoy the podcasts. And if you find them helpful, please pass them on to others. You can also subscribe to our podcast, follow Christ Overall on Twitter, or reach out to us by email. Our ministry depends upon the generous donations of friends as well. And we would also accept your cheerful gift as it helps us to continue to bring these resources to you for free. All of these things can be found at our website, ChristOverall.com. For now, wherever you stand on Christianity and culture, church and state, Christian nationalism or not, let us remember that Christ is Lord, and so in all things, let us exalt Christ.